how do you take a risk? How do you assess the risk? How do you, what does it actually feel like when you're under this sort of stress and strain of risk taking? And those are the things that you have to develop in the team you want to actually innovate first and foremost. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities, and organizations. I'm so excited for today's Coffee Pod. Thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Andy Walsh, a globally recognized leader and expert in the field of elite human performance. For over 20 years, he's focused on the goal of demystifying talent by researching and training individuals and teams across a vast network of world-class programs in sport, culture, military, and business settings. He's been the director of High Performance for Red Bull, where he worked with hundreds of international athletes and cultural opinion leaders. He also was the performance manager for Red Bull Stratos, which you might remember was Felix Baumgartner's record-breaking jump to earth from the stratosphere in 2012. In 2013, he was awarded the Outstanding Contribution to Performance Innovation Award at a prestigious global conference, and he founded Glimpses, the annual human performance Red Bull conference, uh, which is now in its third year. Prior to joining Red Bull, Dr. Walsh designed a highly successful performance program for the U.S. Olympic team, guiding their athletes across sky and snowboarding teams to victories across the world stage. And he's also been a senior consultant at the Australian Institute of Sport. Fascinating chat about elite performance, courage, resilience, creativity, and what it takes to be world-class. You're going to really, really enjoy this. Here's Dr. Andy Walsh. Listen, thanks so much for making the time to have a chat too on the podcast. I'm so excited because I, I find your, your line of work and everything you do utterly inspiring and just so stimulating. I, whenever I hear you talk or I watch you online or read an article with something that you're pioneering or a new thought bubble you're pursuing, I go, oh my gosh, this is this is so exciting. This is a new frontier of kind of human performance and thinking and capability. Um, but I wanted to kick off with like, how, how on earth did you end up doing this? <laughs> how does one end up as sort of the, the leader of, um, of hacking human performance? You know, well, definitely wasn't planned. I think as I started as a, you know, as a coach, as a PE teacher, and uh, and you know, that, but my fascination was in this obviously, you know, performance from the sporting context, and that just grew and grew, and it was a random set of events over many years. And I got very early, very early, I was lucky to, enough to get into the elite side of the sort of work in sport, and, and at that time in Australia as well, the institute was on the rise. You know, they. You know, they had the Olympics coming up, 2000, in Sydney. And and there was just that sort of, you know, you, there, there was a place to grow and learn about the science of performance and the development of athletes and the development of people in a in a, in a fairly structured environment relative to the rest of the world at that point in time. And, uh, you know, and I was just, I was lucky to be on the periphery of that and got involved in different programs on the athletic side and some in, in the Olympic side and, that led to being recruited to the U.S. to build a program for the Winter Olympics and the U.S. ski program and snowboard programs. And that really opened up a whole range of options. And it was interesting at the time, the U.S. very much a, 
a recruiting model relative to Australia, which was more of a development model, again, all relative. With their athletes, you mean? Yeah, just because they have so much talent in their big sports, in their big sports. And And that idea of find them, pay them, and they play and they play very well really was a dominant theme. Again, always exceptions, but relative to Australia was we didn't have that many. If you found them young, you literally had to main, maintain them, nurture them, and and bring them through the system. Whereas over here, it was hey, there's a thousand of them. Let's just pick them. If they don't work, we grab another. Anyway, so but in the winter sports program, they didn't have that depth. So it was a nice way to transition some of the ideas and learnings from all the great mentors we've had down in Australia to back into this program. And mm-hmm. obviously. We had some success and timing and everything else, but we were lucky. That just grew, and I just got more and more involved in different forms of elite performance, and that went from sport, Olympics and professional sports, to government programs, and we sort of got engaged with different communities in those sort of operational and and, and, and sort of scientific programs over here, and then elite business, and that led to one thing after another. So Red Bull opened up the door to the action sports community, which was a whole mm. new world of talent. And then, it's a long-winded answer, but we became sort of lucky. The team is a sort of centre of this place where we could observe and, and and learn from the best in the world in so many different environments and so many different uh, areas of mastery that we just started to be able to aggregate IP in that context and and we were very open we, we shared it as well so we had people just coming and going and we became one of the places that you know people knew they could come and we would share and, and they would share and we would learn off each other. It seems like observing your activity there that it was this continually running experiments, continually taking athletes away to, you know, high altitude, low altitude, putting them in different training environments and and testing uh, performance under different conditions. What were some of the major big buckets of learning that you uncovered during your time with the Red Bull High Performance Program in particular? I think the reality, one of the big first initial sort of learning, and this was sort of over years, so it sort of, on my way to the Red Bull, I'd say, was that, you know, mastery in any domain is, there's so much to learn from the capabilities of a person and what they're able to achieve either by themselves or as a team, that if you pay attention to some of the right signals, you can learn so much. And whether they're a master of, you know, big wave surfing or they have mastered chess or they've mastered an, an instrument or they're a master of business, there's this idea that, there's a lot of differences that it sort of doesn't make it very relevant to anybody, but the reality is at the very top of the game, there's so many similarities between the skill sets that they've developed outside of the tactics of what they actually do mm. that you start to see these commonalities, and that was one big learning. The other big learning, I think, was, and this was really pressed home in, in, the, in the environment at, at Rebel, we had so many people in so many different domains of sport and music and culture and arts that... The notion of, and many of them had gotten to world-class success without any framework, without any stepping stones, without any formal coaching, without any formal mentoring. They just sort of crafted their own way there. That we, you know, realised very early that you know the opportunities for getting the most out of an individual really came down to us establishing first and foremost the right environment around them. And if you get the right environment around an individual, they can explore their own edges in ways you would never even imagine if the environment gives them the right feedback at the appropriate time, they'll learn and grow and do so in a way that 
sort of reinvents their own learning path. So versus the classic model of coming in and coaching someone to do A, B, C, and D, mm. the, the classic idea of a really uh, um, discovery-based learning model was really hit back home to us, and that really started to give us opportunities to think outside the box. And just about every uh, every time we brought a new person into the program, at whatever domain they were trying to become an expert in, we were able to think about their development in very, very broad and open terms. I love that. And and one of the things I found really interesting since I first started talking to you about the environment topic, because it was something you touched on with the Virgin series last year, um, you talked about this piece that environment does a lot of the teaching for you and, and part of it is the environment of performing in the conditions that you're going to need to perform under. And then part of it is this whole piece of uncertainty as a training methodology. And I found it really fascinating that you, you developed really an approach that was intentionally throwing elite talent into unfamiliar and quite extreme environments. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the theory behind that and what that involved? Yeah, well, I think that really boiled down to this notion that once you've become a master in your domain, you have spent countless hours uh, in that environment learning the skills, learning the, learning the craft, and you've obviously... You know, as, as because you, by default you've mastered it, you've become very good in this space. And so the room for opportunity to change your training to have a great impact in that space is very limited because you're adding on multiple hours of programming and training, you're, you're maybe adding one. So that percentage increment in terms of uh, opportunity to improve you is very low. Flip over to dragging you out of that environment, putting you in a very uncommon environment, Number one, we start to learn very quickly who you really are. We have a saying. In the <laughs> I bet. Yeah, we have a saying in the business. You know, you show up as you know who you want us to see you to be, and then quickly in these challenging and uncommon environments, we get to see who you really are. Mm. And everyone, there's this, there's this gap, and that's just natural. People want to portray a version of themselves, uh, which is you know obviously you know their best side. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but the reality is when we actually put you in an uncommon space in an uncommon way, we can strip away that facade very quickly and then we see what you're really made of. Again, no judgment here, just, okay, once we know the core version of you that is, is available to sort of participate, we can then craft the training specifically to that space. And you will learn a lot about yourself in that environment. Mm. So we started to see, in summary, that we got far more impact in, 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 in these cases where we would strip you out of that analogy, out of that out of that training and drop you into something very different because it resets you very quickly. The equivalent would be in AFL because I know you, you love that sport. That Absolutely. How many, times have they, how many times have they been on that pitch and run around and done their stuff and it's probably been a version of grass or some form of it since they were very young. And so you think about how much how much training they've already done in that phase, so how much impact can that next one hour actually have with them? Versus if you strip them out and dump them into, as you saw with us, some of the stuff we did with Cirque du Soleil or even just stand-up comedy, they don't have a set of tools to deal with that space. You're going to ramp them very quickly in terms of their exposure to stress. They're going to feel far more uh, challenged in that, in that environment than they do on the, on the footy field. And in that moment, they can learn a lot about themselves we give them skills and techniques to manage themselves in that very high stress state, which then, when they go back to the pitch, seems a lot more comfortable and they can they can actually detune it and make that advance. And that's one of the premises there. There's a lot more to it, but that would be fundamentally it. The uncommon challenge brings out the true version of you 
that version of you as an opportunity to learn about yourself and then mm. learning about yourself and practicing in that state, you can take that back to your area of mastery. And one of the things I found really interesting about sort of the experience and exposure I've had in the elite sports space is that it's very routine-based. You know, you train on Tuesday mornings, Thursdays, Fridays, you play on the weekend or whatever the, the rhythm and cadence that particular sport might be. Um, but that idea of intentionally disrupting that routine, and, and I imagine as well, I think we're sometimes guilty of, okay, during the off-season we'll go and do the one thing that we're afraid of, we'll take them into a particular activity. But my sense is what you're talking about is the importance of these different, uncomfortable, uh, unique experiences becoming a new part of that rhythm. It's not kind of doing it once. It's sort of going, how do we routinely find opportunities to expose ourselves to new environments? Absolutely, and I think, yes, once a year is the old model of dragging them out of the bush and yeah. knocking the hell out of them or whatever that may be. And I think that works, but in out of context and out of a regular uh, support and reinforcement of those ideas, it just has a very limited effect. In fact, it can work in the opposite. It can alienate them and also, obviously, the risk of injury is very high. Mm. When you do it in such a way that you're then layering that through the season, it, it's, it's actually more broadly than your sport. It's, it's really about... In this world we're in now where disruption and innovation and change is so omnipresent and that success has been able to thrive in a very dynamic and, and chaotic environment. And, and, and if you think about the sporting analogy, that there is a plan when they get on the field, but the plan usually goes to hell. Very yeah. rarely does it actually work according to plan. So, again, they have to learn the skills. They have to be able to execute the skills. But I think... There's a far more opportunity to explore how they operate in in these in this dynamic environment and testing them that way mm. versus their opportunity to add another few hours of kicking the footy around. Now, there's all the considerations, obviously, in sport and, and in other environments with elite C-suite or even you know, uh, artists and musicians. I suppose that you, you've got to be careful. You don't want to run the extra risk of injury. I mean, many of these in the elite world are paid a lot of money, so yeah. people are very up worried about upsetting them and getting them, you know, you know, offending the player. And, you know, and this is all, these are all considerations. But I think there's, there's just, an, there's another layer of this that people can mm. play with it, I think, really. And it can be as simple as, you know, booking them in a bad hotel one night. It can, <laughs> you know, having, having the bus drop them off at the wrong spot and then they have to figure out how to get back. If that unravels them a lot and they're not used to dealing with that, imagine what happens half time when they're down you know, 20 points and they have to recover. They, yeah. That, you know, it's, just, it's just that notion, yeah. And, and I love that piece too because, and, and you're right, whether we're talking sport or whether we're talking sort of the elite performance in the business world, um, that, that idea of vulnerability, that protection of ego, we're really reluctant to put people in situations that exposes that because of all the potential ramifications on, you know, frustrating them or getting them angry or upset or what have you. Um, and I, I love that idea of sort of, you know, be that individually driven or be that a collective decision of the team to intentionally uh, make the commitment to do that, you know, acknowledging sensitivities but going, hey, there's a there's a bigger picture than, you know, whether I feel comfortable in this moment and we can achieve something far greater out the other side if we're willing to go through this. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. The... The idea that if you, uh, as a team or an individual, are willing to put yourself out there and, and, and just see where you will fall short, just is such a, a unique learning opportunity 
it shows you where things aren't maybe quite where they should be, and that's where you could focus some of your training and development. But you need the, you know, you need to have courage to do that first and foremost. And with courage, you need to have an environment. Back to that statement earlier, where you know that that's supported. It's not safe per se with respect to the fact that they're going to let you make a mistake. But the the idea that the entire organisation recognises that this this is an area where you potentially will fall fall short of what you've set out and then they've got your back Mm. at the end of the day. And it's very hard nowadays, some of the things we're focusing a lot in the world over here is how do you train this next generation of managers to actually let go enough to let their group make mistakes like this such that it's not a... And they get to a level of uh, sort of uh, their own development where they're confident enough to let the room and the, the group they may be managing fall short and and I think this whole environment requires not only the individual undergoing the process but the, the management and the, and the organisational culture around it needs to be supportive of this because if you're not, you're just not going to take the risks. Mm. Of course, you won't take the risks because you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to make a mistake. Someone else is going to be prepared to do that and that's where these organisations are getting horrifically disrupted. I love that. And there's so many questions for me that stem, stem straight off of that. But that piece around risk-taking, which you've touched on, it's, it's critical to the innovation and the disruption that we're talking about. It's, it's critical to, in any context, being better tomorrow than we are today. But that idea of often the system undermining the intention, you know, I, I meet people all the time and uh, their businesses going, oh, we need to disrupt, we need to do new things. But the, the performance criteria they've placed around that new unit of business or the hiring decisions they've made for who they've put in that role and um, the, the terms that they're innovating under are completely undoing the intention to deliver you know, a new result, a different business model, anything like that. What have you kind of learned about, to your point around incentives and structures that need to be in an organisation to actually support the risk-taking behaviour? Uh, oh, I think you, 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 you've nailed it there again. I think the idea that everyone understands that they have to do this now, it's not, not, not unknown now that, and it's very well accepted that they need to innovate to avoid being disrupted. And it's easy to say it. It's very difficult, I think, for the inertia of many organisations to actually implement a framework to do it. And I think it starts with some really basic premises. Think about this, that another word for creativity is courage. Now, creativity being the, in our sort of language, the essence of innovation. If you don't have a a framework that allows people to bring their best forward and, and, and enable them to take a risk and demonstrate their courage, then you just can't get that innovation. But that they are aware of what it's like to take a risk and challenge themselves. They need to be trained in how to take risk, how to manage risk, how to assess risk. This whole conversation of, yeah, go out there and take a risk and then let them go really doesn't support them in any way. No, it doesn't, does it? Oh, honey, you've really got to sit down. That's what we, How do you take a risk? How do you assess the risk? How do you, what does it actually feel like when you're under this sort of stress and strain of risk-taking? And those are the things that you have to develop in the team you want to actually innovate first and foremost. And, again, you can't do it in the business setting because the egos are tighter. You probably have to rip them out and put them in a, in a, in a, in a modulated framework that sort of get that, that experience across. And it has to be experienced. You can't PowerPoint your way through this stuff. <laughs> the other thing is... The other thing is then you have to have an institution that backs that model. So mm. that institution itself has to have systems of former owner. It's a classic. I had this conversation the other day with a, a, a big brand over here. They're like, yeah, we need to start this innovation hub and 
and we're going to invest in it and da-da-da. And, and I said, all right, great. They said, but, yeah, we're, we're you know. I said, how, how on board is the executive team? How on board is the leadership team? And they go, oh, well, we think they're on board, but we're not sure. Well, the expectation was they'd have a couple of million-dollar budget to set this thing up. Mm-hmm. And I said, that was, I think, the inferred agreed number, but no one actually mentioned it yet. And I said, well, let's see how brave they are. Go in there and tell them right off the bat, and I haven't told them to install GoPros just so they can have something to feed back on, but they felt that was a little sneak. But I said, go in and first thing on the back, go sit down, sit the CFO and the CEO and the CMO, all those crews sitting there, just say, all right, we've done our homework. We think we've got a model for innovation. It's going to be groundbreaking. We're thinking about 30 to 40 million to get this thing rolling. And just see the reaction. And if the first reaction from the room is just this explosion of, can't be done, da, 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 you know the kind of environment that they're really thinking about. Mm-hmm. Now, not to say that they, you can get their money out, but it was just an interesting way I said to people to test the area of their environment to say, if that reaction, first reaction is, oh my God, how much money is it going to cost? This is too much money versus listening to the problem set, analyzing the information and maybe taking a little bit on board with respect to we are really serious about this and the risk is worth the reward. But that sort mm. of mindset just gives you a sense. And what I'm probably trying to say is if the CFO and the C-suite aren't on board with this idea that this is going to be a lost leader, could be for five, ten years, you are just going to have to invest in this like any other marketing uh, spend in the organization. You're going to have to throw money at this mm-hmm. and let it play and let it experience and let them make mistakes because if they're, not a, if they're afraid that you're going to lose the money that they gave you, then all straight away you're in a position where you're trying to hedge that money and come up with a sure thing. As soon as you're trying to come up with a sure thing, you've just cut the knees out of the innovation pipeline. Mm, completely. It's interesting that it's mindset, and mindset's a fascinating part. And there's, there's a couple of different ways I want to ask you about mindset, but the first one you've made me think of there is um, this piece around risk-taking and the openness to that. You, you've touched on the importance of thinking through how we develop and train people in it. Business leaders that are looking to hire people for their organisations now, how do you get a sense, particularly because I think, you know, the new culture of business is needing to almost be in a continuous state of startup, responding to new phenomena in this really rapidly changing environment. How How do you get a sense of whether people have got the right mindset to be in those sorts of environments? How do you, how do you test capabilities for who you bring on to a team uh, in, in order to ensure you're getting the right person for the role? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think we really have – I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space to really explore what, what it is you're really after. And I think in many of these recruiting and hiring processes, being very deliberate in exactly the type of character you're after and, 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 and hiring towards that and assessing towards that is the first thing. And I just say that as an overarching sort of uh, uh, framework for this. But I think, you know, in terms of the ability to have people on board who are going to respond and thrive in this challenging environment, I think you have to actually, in the, in the, in the, in the appraisal or interview process, that, that's the thing you have to hit on. Literally, again, just working with another company here, we were all in agreement that we, we, we have zero interest in the CV and the resume nowadays. We expect you to have the degree and the background and the skills. I mean, that's not even, it's not even worth discussing. You, you just turn up with that. 
it's, it's have you faced adversity in your life? Have you overcome a particular challenge? Have you demonstrated your capabilities in another way that, that sort of reflect your skills with respect to uh, managing this environment? Those are the questions and the things that we look for. And, you know, in, in some instances, we put you out in a space in an uncommon place, challenge you something. We've, we've even dragged people out and put them through very physically demanding things just to see how they respond to something very unexpected. But I think it's up to whatever it is that you're looking for with respect to that skill set. Can you isolate that in their past? Can you test them real time? There there are some assessments you can do. I know it's a common thing nowadays to sort of brief them on a, on a, give them a briefing with respect to a presentation you want them to do and tell them that it's for tomorrow morning in terms of the selection process, but call them up at 6 o'clock and say, no, we want to see it in an hour. Yeah. But things like that really do give you a taste of how yeah. people respond to react. Now, this is uncomfortable and it's not going to be, you know, but you, again, it's got to be done in a supportive and encouraging way. But if they really do fall apart, and, and, and as I shared with you earlier, the idea that this one very successful tech entrepreneur, uh, you know, in the, two hours ago shared with us the idea that he has parents of some of these people he's hiring calling him up, challenging him why he was so critical of them. We're getting much very different type of person in, in many cases coming through in some, in some instances. Yeah. And you've got to select that out and um, unless that, that, that's what you're after. And that was a question I wanted to ask about mindset as well, this piece around, I feel, and Carol Dweck's obviously exploring this idea of fixed versus growth mindset, but I think I met a lot of people who say, oh, I don't like taking risks, or I'm, I'm quite risk-averse, so almost as though it's a, a fixed set, I've concluded that's my relationship with risk. Um, what role does self-awareness around your relationship with risk play, and then to what degree can you change ingrained behavior and habit and start to move yourself to someone that could do the things you're afraid of, could be the courageous one that's putting themselves in the new environment. How how easy or hard is that to shift your relationship with risk? Well, yeah, I think the, the, the notion that some people maybe just aren't cut out for this space is very real. And, and I think that's, that doesn't mean that it has no value. You don't want your entire – think of your portfolio of your organization mm-hmm. and that's the – organization, you're actually in the position of mitigating risks across the entire platform. So the way I think about it when we're talking with these communities is, oh, I think about that. You as the boss get to, all right, I can actually leverage a bit of risk over here and let that that's, that that division play, but I'm going to actually offset that over here. So you actually are able to then have opportunities for people across the board. And some people may be more inclined to play over here where the stakes are a little higher and the risk is a little higher. Mm-hmm. And they may thrive there. Others, you obviously select for and maybe push to the other part of the organization. The ability to change it is a far different proposition, I think. I, I truly believe if you can set up the right environment, you can change people towards any end state. But the the classic analogy we use uh, often is the juice worth the squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not just from a organizational resource perspective, but even on the person themselves. Is it, is it worth putting through them through that much trauma to get them to shift? And they may not ever enjoy it anyway uh, versus hiring or selecting. And that's that develop versus select model that most organizations adopt. But I think everyone can learn to be more aware. They can learn to understand space at a higher level of sophistication. In that understanding, they'll naturally mm. grow 
a greater acceptance. Now, whether the person that'll go and put their house on black at Vegas or not is uh, probably has a little bit more to do with uh, framework, epigenetics and genetics and and the uh, the, their youth than than potentially uh, uh, other things. So that's 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 probably where it's at. Righto, that makes sense. And I think that's probably encouraging for a lot of people. It is a sense of finding your right fit within the... Because I think sometimes, too, we, we over-index with some of the language around the disruption and everyone feels like they've got to be a massive risk-taker and got to be an entrepreneur and, and you know, realising that incredible sort of supportive ecosystem that you've talked about, that there's a role and there's different needs depending on what we're talking about, what we're doing, the portfolio of projects. Everyone's just got to find their fit within that and then we've got to have the right structures around them to make sure they succeed within that fit. Yeah, I think this is the idea of uh, personalization of work. It's an idea, a term we've been using a lot lately. It's the idea of, okay, if you really want to bring the most and get the most out of your group, then the idea of framing up their skill set, matching it obviously to the things that they're good at and they enjoy, is an old concept. But I think we're in a, in the, again, the, 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 the conversations everyone's having nowadays about disruption and innovation, it's like, oh, we all should train and be good at that. But that's, that's absolutely not what you want. In fact, I think even in my own case, I get fairly creative and you know, distracted by shiny things all over the place, and that's how I find myself thinking. But if the first person I hire in, in an organisation that I'm standing up is the complete opposite to me, someone who can manage to align, execute along the line, you know, those sort of really operational, executional skill sets, which I don't have, and you know, it's great to have the idea, but you also got to implement. And I think that it's, 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 as you said, it's giving everyone a chance to participate in this. But at some level in the organisation, I think nowadays more than ever, you do have to have those individuals who are going to push the edges and who are going to challenge things in a way that's probably more emphasised than in the past, just because the rate of change is so quick. Mm. I wanted to ask you just briefly about the mindset in the athlete environment too. Uh, one of the things my coach used to say to me over and over again uh, when I was training for my Ironman was your head's going to give up long before your body does. Um, and I think that was sort of her explanation of why we needed to train to find my breaking point and, and develop kind of these mental strategies to, to get through so that in those moments on race day when I needed to, I could find it and I could convince myself to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. But I wanted to ask you about the role that our mindset, limitations, our perception of ourselves and what we're capable of plays in this uh, performance space, be that the everyday person or the elite athlete. How much does that control how well we show up and what we do? That's a million-dollar question. Um, honestly, I the way we think in, in the holistic manner is that you know, mind and body, spirit, they're all connected. They're not separate entities. And, and and one will always support the other or pull the other down. So the physical capabilities, you work on your physical stamina, your physical, in your particular case, for the Iron, Ironman, you naturally, through that sheer just physical improvement, develop a sense of confidence and mindset that you can do more than you did in the past. Flip that around, when it really gets tough and really gets hard, that space where you potentially would quit, even though the body is capable of going, is uh, is where the mind seems to have a dominant effect. And but I think you hit the hit the nail again on the head with respect to the idea that the mindset and the physical set can both be trained. 
you push the edge physically to that point where you want to quit so that you get at least a, a, a look into that space and look at how you respond. And in that moment is when you actually have the opportunity to train, train the mindset because you can say, all right, how am I, how am I, how am I reacting to this pain or this discomfort right now? Is my conversation one of, Oh my God, this is hurting so much. I'm just going to quit. Or is it one of, Oh my, what's, what's this really, what's really hurting right now? How much does this, hurt? you know, just really trying to look beyond the pain. And those are the sort of skill sets that you can start to train at that moment. So you kind of need both to get to that final game. And I think, you know, it, 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 I think people always say, Oh, they mentally don't have it after a game, after a loss of a game or after a loss of an event because, and you never hear them say, Oh, they didn't have a high enough VO2 because when you say, hey, they mentally don't have the game, it's, it's it's sort of generic blank thing that you can throw out there and no one will really argue with you. So yeah. I think it's really an interesting idea. You commentators uh, say it all the time, don't you? Oh, they just, you know, didn't oh, yeah. have it mentally today or, you know, they look like they're not here or something like that. And it's a great thing to say because you don't really know what the hell's going on, to be honest. So you just toss that one out there and no one can argue with you. And, uh, you know, Clive Woodward told me that one years ago, you know, the, the ex-rugby uh, union coach for, the U- for England. And, and, it, and it struck me at just the inside. And I think when we look for the best in class performances, we're looking for that combination, obviously, in the physical environment or the mm-hmm. athletic environment to have that physical capability to push yourself to the point where you feel really uncomfortable. And then at that moment, the mental uh, fortitude and the, and the resilience at that space to push beyond that and, 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 the, and the confidence to know that you can push beyond that and you need to explore both edges and, that, and that's where the real learning in terms of those sort of top performers comes. And I was going to ask you there too because you've studied a lot of performance under stress and under duress. That application to the everyday person who's going, managing, a, a, you know, a very full plate, juggling with the stress and responsibilities of work or leadership or whatever their context might be, what what tips or things have you uncovered about how to how to best perform when you're under those high-pressure situations? Well, I think um, first and foremost, stress to you it's stress to you, and whether it's stress because you're about to step into the heat of battle or it's because you're about to face uh, your child's teacher who's called you in to discuss their behavior, that it yeah. doesn't matter. No. It's, it really doesn't matter. Now, one is a certain person has been trained to do this and a certain person is trained to do the other. So I just always make that clear that it's, it's very easy, first and foremost, to compare yourself, and that's a negative thing, and say, oh, oh well, I'm not handling my stress as well as X, Y, Z. And, and that really that doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it does not help at all. Now, the other thing is, first and foremost, be kind to yourself. Be very, very kind to yourself. Think about it in the context of any time you're feeling that rise in anxiety or that rise in stress, the, the, the simple fact of the matter is you've put yourself in a situation where the circumstances are not familiar or the challenge is slightly beyond what you think you have the capability of doing. So that in its own line is just re- reframe that whole thing as, okay, versus a threat, which is what obviously causes the stress response, this is a challenge. This is a time for me to actually see, take a deep breath and just see what I've got and see how it's going to go and, and, I, and I really have an opportunity to learn something about myself here. So just that reframing 
the, the, the space you're in from a, oh, hell, I'm going to look like a fool or I'm going to make a mistake or I'm not going to perform as well as I could to, a, hey, I'm going to put out, I'm going to see what I've got, and if I fall short, I'm going to see that shows me what I've got to work on. That, is, that in itself helps the moment. The second thing I, we, we say to people is just sort of, you know, you be kind to yourself, you reframe the threat as a challenge, so you've given yourself permission to make a mistake and that allows you to reframe the threat as a challenge. Then assess the situation. Take a moment to just make a decision based on fact and observation versus assumption, which is what, again, everybody will do. Humans have an innate capability in the absence of information of filling in the blanks with worst-case scenario. It's an ancient physiological mechanism. You know, you think about it, you're walking around the, the, the savannah, you hear a rustle in the grass. It's probably safe to assume the thing is going to eat you so you get the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't serve you well in today's environment. And if you think about the essence of what you do in a meeting per se, where you walk in, you've got this big presentation and you put it up on the screen and you've been working for this idea for six months, and you present it and then you say, okay, everyone, is this feedback and someone challenges you right off front? What is most people's uh, reaction at that moment? It's, oh, my God. They, 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 you're protective. You potentially, in most cases, if we're honest, we feel threatened and we, and in a way you're assuming that this person is trying to make me look like a fool or they mm. want my job or we assume all sorts of things. The assessment potentially could be very much oh, wow, are they here to help me make this idea better? Or maybe they had a lousy night with the kids who were up with, up with the flu all night. You know, there's so many other things that it could potentially be. Yeah. And it, they could also be an asshole. But, you know, the, <laughs> but, 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 but the idea is that this model of assessing the situation, taking in the cues, the environmental cues that really give you information, then acting accordingly, and that way you get to respond versus react. Mm. So... In that situation in the boardroom where you put your idea up, but the reaction could be very defensive and aggressive. It could be the response once you've assessed that potentially this, in, in, this is an opportunity for me to make my idea better. The appropriate response could be ex explore more, share with me more about why you think, why are you coming up with that? Being very much directional with respect to moving towards your goals is a response versus a reaction, mm. which is random. So in any, high, in any environment where we feel the stakes are high, so the threat level goes up, we try and walk through that framework a little bit as one of the training tools, and we train to those skills. But fundamentally, if I full circle to make it simple again, be kind to yourself. You're going to be your world's worst critic. You're going to challenge yourself internally. That inner dialogue is going to beat yourself down. Give yourself permission. Observe what you're saying to yourself and just accept it. Don't judge it. Don't. I should be doing this or I could have done that or this is, yeah, just observe the thoughts and conversations you're having, accept it and let it pass by. That's great advice. I love that. Now, one of the things I wanted to touch on with you is that you've worked across some of the world's most extraordinary elite sporting environments. You've also worked with some of the world's uh, leading companies. You've worked with the military. Um, I'm really interested to get a sense of what you think the elite sporting world could learn from business and other organizations and vice versa what it is that um, the, the business world can be taking from the sporting context um well i think many people have sort of uh, are, uh, are in this space where they translate these stories i think the sports world um 
what can we learn from the, the, from the from the military world? I think in certain areas, human capacity is tested at a level of stress and endurance beyond anything the sports world ever puts on it and the military context. So I think you can just get a sense of potential mm -hmm. from the military community. Uh, a lot of their training methods and methodologies and selection methodologies are very well honed and very rigorous. And I think elements of those methodologies, especially with respect to team and leadership, can be applied. And again, this has been done for many years in sport. But I think even the more subtle things with respect to uh, planning and preparation, multiple contingencies, mm. uh, backup plans, chaos. I mean, there there are experts at training in chaotic environments. That, that's the, I mean, again, the very top tier military groups that that's how they train. They train for the unknown. <laughs> and again, back to the analogy with respect to how you manage yourself under stress, unknown, filling in the blanks with worst case scenario. The more you train in that unknown state, the less you'll fill in the blanks with worst case scenario and the more you'll work the problem. Yeah. And that's essentially, and that's exactly what we're looking for. What, uh, uh, what we learn from business, I think, that, I think there's a lot of things from the business world that sports world can identify. And I think very practically right now, I think some of the biggest lessons that the sporting communities we're engaged with over here are playing with is how to be internally disruptive, how to shake themselves up, how to how to take some of these models of innovation and uh, and and creative thinking and bring it to the play. I think I'm, I'm a big proponent of bringing creative minds, artists, musicians into the athletic environment. Much Which like I love because I think that is so rare. Yeah, and, and business has been doing this not a lot longer, but for a while. The, the, the value of that really creative and different thinking mindset, I think that is where business is uh, are bringing a lot to the table. And very practically, I think, you know, the fact that you're seeing over here a lot of the big franchises build accelerators and incubators on the side of their businesses is really a way of them saying we want to be involved in the innovation. Again, it's always typically sports-related or you know, human-related, but in some cases it may be fan engagement-related or, or marketing-related, but they're, they're bringing these sort of entities that business have started over to their shop and trying to build that competency on the side just to be part of that sort of dynamic and shifting environment. And then if you flip it all around, I think everybody, elite sports has so much to teach from the, from the coaching mindset to both groups, I think it's, there's so much to learn. I think the biggest conversation I have with most of the business groups over here, especially when they're working on how to get more out of their people, is, look, you're a manager in these, uh, in these business models, you're, which is essentially, you know, putting up guardrails and making sure that, you know, people don't get in trouble and they stick to budget. And I'm being very harsh on the good managers out there, but... The fundamental difference between a manager and a coach is a coach, a great coach, is on out there to get the most out of everybody else on the mm. field. <clears throat> and a great manager should be more like a great coach, and they, they do know this, but I think that's one of the real powerful ways that uh, uh, that you, things that you can learn from sport is that you know, the world-class coaches, it is all about getting the most out of those people. Again, that's more common in sport and less common in business, but obviously yeah. you have parallel. One of the other interesting things I think business learns from both the military and just to bring it full circle, that it learns from military and sport is that in business you just compete, 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 compete. Mm -hmm. In 
sport, you train a lot to compete at a very designated time and even to another level in the military, you train all the time. So it's like 95% training, or 98% training, 2% execution. Mm. And I think the inability of businesses to grow and develop their talent and also their capabilities is the fact that they never train. They always execute. And that is a fundamental problem and a huge area of opportunity for businesses. And they'll always say, and they say it to me, oh, we don't have time for that. I said, that's exactly the problem. You you have got to make time. If you want to get world-class performance, you've got to invest in training and development. And, you know, it doesn't need to be 98%, but it could be better than... I love that you yeah. call that out because you do wonder with the, you know this ever-growing list of demands and ever-growing set of expectations on leaders when there's not the investment and I mean that in resource and as you've said there that that time piece to be able to allow them to actually grow into that build new competencies you just go well how does this ever work out <laughs> in a way where everyone wins yeah and let's talk about the earlier conversation uh, we want to set up this innovation lab and this innovation cell and here's the money go. I mean, what the hell? You know, you need to train and invest in those people such that they are able to handle that environment and, and risk-taking and, and creativity. And, and, yeah, and it all, every, I think everybody also understands the more they invest in the talent, the more they get out of it. It's just, it's just easier, I think, and the model's set up to support execution over development. And, again, organization-wide, it doesn't need to be everybody in that bucket, but I think for certain groups and certain communities investing in those people and honestly supporting them towards their life's best work mm. will repay itself tenfold. Uh, uh, it's just uh, take a longer game than maybe some business groups are set up for. What for you do you see is sort of the relationship between technology and humans in the, in the sense of human potential and is that going to open entirely new doors? Is technology going to um, propel us in new directions? Are we over-indexing towards tech at the expense of continuing to improve our people? What's your sense of the relationship between the two? Great question because uh, this is right there in my heart and that's not because I'm in the human side of this equation. And, and you know, I, I, you'll have heard me say humans are the new tech. Yes, but I Love think that. humans are the new tech. But I really think that we are over-indexing in technology with respect to humans. In a, in a, in not 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 with respect to resources, but in terms of uh, uh, the framework. And I really think that as we talk about, I'm sitting in a couple of uh, communities where we're having really active discussions about the future of machines and all that sort of stuff. And I'm always sitting on the human side, but I really believe I have no, I have, I'm fully supportive of building smart machines, deep learning and all that sort of stuff. And I think as we all know, technology is going to take a lot of our jobs and all the rest of it away. So there's a natural fear. <clears throat> but the fundamental question that I always pose is what are humans really good at? And if we can't answer that question and people do struggle to answer that question, then I really, really begs me the next question is, well, what, what sort of machine are we creating? Mm. If we're trying to replace humans on one level <clears throat> for simplicity, automatization, all the rest of it, I think we should consider very carefully what are those competencies that the machines are going to develop <clears throat> and what we continue to grow in terms of technology pursuit versus the real true nature of what it means to be a human being. Because I think if we get down to things like compassion, empathy, courage, 
the spirit of an individual, their character, those are the things that really define a human amongst many others. Mm. But those are the things that are going to take a long time for any sort of intelligence or machine to take over. So I think the way it plays out for me is we should still focus as heavily as we can on developing human capabilities, but we apply technology to the equation, one, to help us solve the problem sets around what people are really good at, but two, to also take off us all this mundane and menial work that keeps us very busy every day, like answering emails, <laughs> and allow us then, to, and then, allow, then allow us to focus on developing those characteristics of true humanity. So again, making people more resilient, making them more courageous, making them more compassionate. Yeah. Thinking about their creativity, these things, if we spent all our time really engendering these uh, skill sets within humans and let the machine take the rest of our play, I think we can evolve as an, as an entity even along those, those lines in ways that are unexpected. So that's how I sort of rationalize this sort of charge towards the super machine and that it hopefully in my ways will ultimately, the smarter the machine gets at the mundane, the more it will allow us to push the boundaries of humanity. I love that version of things. I feel that's a very optimistic humanist view. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I think it'll. It may. There's going to be some real rough patches ahead. I think yeah. with respect to this. But I honestly, feel like even now there's a pushback against the tech. I think the the way that it's engaging us as uh, even if you just take the social platforms and things like that and the, the incidence of anxiety and depression amongst people who are obviously spending a lot of time and the mm. research showing, I think that's going to backlash and I think you're going to see a, 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 a time and place in the not too distant future where we realize that burying our head on online all day is not the best use of what we're here for and uh, that will hopefully swing around. Now that's the optimistic view. Maybe it goes the other way and we end up working for the machine like an Uber driver, but uh, I don't think that's going to be the case for if we can if we pay attention at least to where. Oh, I love talking to you. I could honestly talk to you for hours, but I'm so mindful of your time. So I just have two final questions uh, that we like to ask everyone who comes on Coffee Pods. The first one, and I um, can't wait for your answer to this. For those listening who are wanting to uh, to be the best in their field, who are aspiring to you know to excellence, what's your best bit of advice? for what they can be doing to achieve that? Um, I think it comes back to the early conversation. If you try to push and, and develop yourself in your particular field, give yourself permission. Be kind. Let yourself make mistakes. Let yourself get, get to that, that child mindset again, the beginner's mindset of where you're just out there and you're exploring and playing and, and give yourself the freedom to do that because I think whatever field you're in, if you if you adopt that and, and it could be called a growth mindset or the beginner's mind, but just the the ability that if you're out there exploring your edge, know that you're going to make a mistake. Know that when you make a mistake, it's just an opportunity, and then let that be your guide as to where and how you should move next. I think that's the number one piece of advice I'd give people. Awesome. And for those listening, if you could give them a call to action or an encouragement to do something, what would the call to action be? A call to action with respect to themselves or the world? You can pick whichever way you'd like to take it. <laughs> Both if you want. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought this one through. I think uh, I think if I had a call to action to people now, it would be with respect to themselves again. 
the idea that we're sitting on the edge of this time where human capabilities are going to be expanded and explored in a way that they've never been uh, been at, we've never had the opportunity to do before and and I think it's up to us to be the guardians of how we move through this next iteration of technology and it's an inevitable onslaught so I would I would just ask people to be you know aware of their own humanity in this space of ever increasing and encompassing technology because I think you can anchor yourself in that space and if you find yourself overwhelmed and, and, and sort of out of depth, getting back to who you are and what you stand for, your values really will be a way to sort of get through it. Oh, that's a great rallying cry. Andy, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. I can't wait to follow all the new projects you've got your fingers in at the moment and see where they're going to take humanity and where they're going to take performance. And, and thank you so much for being so gener generous in uh, sharing your insights today. Oh, no, thank you to you, Holly, and to your audience for having the patience. And we're always looking to build our community, so we love to hear from people out there who, who have thoughts and insights or even challenges for what we're doing. So please uh, track us down and uh, we look forward to connecting. Brilliant. And we'll put all that information uh, online as well so anyone who's listening can connect with you and find out about what you're doing. Um, what's the best place to direct them to now? Is it your website? I think right now, because I'm all, I think the best place right now, probably the easiest is LinkedIn just because it's, okay, cool. it's kind of the most today, so that'll work. Beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Well, I imagine you've got to run, but is there any chance you're coming to Australia anytime soon? I am actually going to poke my head down uh, here very shortly, uh, probably the end of this oh, wow, few really? days. Okay. Yeah, just uh, uh, probably covering off on all the topics we're talking about, but trying to apply to some uh, sporting groups and some um, uh, in discussions there. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that all comes together. Cool. We'll sing out because I'd love to get you on Port Adelaide's radar. In fact, I've spoken to Koshi about you and said we need to be getting Andy in to work with our group. So if you've got capacity to meet with um, with any of our team, they can fly to where you are. Um, let me know because um, I've already flagged that we should be looking at that in our footy department. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll let you know for sure, mate. I'll yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get – our head of footy um, is a sensational guy, Chris Davies, and I think the two of you would get on really well and um, – if we could make the time to connect you two, that'd be great. And obviously, I'd love to see you and catch up as well. So sing out when you know your plans. I will, mate, for sure. I look forward to catching up. And if you're in LA, of course, you're always open invite. Thank you. I will definitely be taking up on that. I'm trying to map out this whole book research process at the moment, so I might swing by and get your advice. And I'll certainly have LA as a destination on the on that travel list. Perfect, Ali. Well, good talking to you as always. Congrats on all your achievements and the new new endeavours. I look forward to seeing it all come to life. Thanks, Andy. I so appreciate that. Have a great rest of the day and thanks again. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.